The show of support from you, our valued listeners, has been overwhelming. You've already raised enough to pay for most of a year's worth of episodes of this show. If you can afford a little something, please click the link to the GoFundMe in the show description. Thank you so very much. Welcome to Let It Roll, the insanely ambitious musical history podcast hosted by Nate Wilcox. We've covered the early history of rock and roll, country music in the 20th century, the rise of hip-hop, disco, and electronic dance music, and heavy metal. Stay tuned for our histories of Broadway, opera, punk rock, jazz, blues, ragtime, Latin music, and gospel. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter, at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate welcomes back Chris Duncan for our next Let Metal Roll miniseries installment, this time discussing the Melvins documentary, Colossus of Destiny, and the Tad documentary, Busted Circuits and Ringing Ears. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, or should I say, it's time to let metal roll because Chris Duncan is back, the guest lecturer of music at Iowa State University, and we're here to continue our Let Metal Roll series, which is sort of a supplement or a follow-up to the Metal Evolution series I did with Alexi and Eugene. The last episode Chris and I did was on Thrash, and now we're going to go in and try to do a little bit more in-depth on Grunge. We also want to do an alt-metal slash funk-metal episode, but we're looking for the right source material on that. That's all happening at the same time in the late 80s. So for this episode, we're going to talk about um, primarily two bands and the documentaries about them. We're going to be talking about Tad, documentary Busted Circuits and Ringing Ears, and we're going to be talking about the Melvins Colossus of Destiny documentary. So Chris, welcome. How are you doing, Nate? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. And this is like, I don't know, my fifth or sixth grunge episode. And there's one key point that should have been obvious that I'm going to try to make. What is, what is the one key point that you want to make? <laughs> the key point I want to make is the thing that has been disconcerting to me talking about grunge is that and it should have been obvious from the beginning, but there were two different eras of grunge. There was the indie era of grunge when it was bands on mainly the sub pop label out of seattle and then there's the post smells like teen spirit era when it's nirvana soundgarden pearl jam and alice in chains and it's all on mtv and it's all major labels and that's all people remember and this previous period of two to three years when sub pop was the hottest indie label in the states um hands down at the same time that alt metal was bubbling under Lollapalooza is gather is coming together and it's gonna uh, you know big Lollapalooza tour happens in 1991 anyway I want to try to get so how much of that is just like VH1 documentaries just because because grunge is always portrayed as like a 90s thing but the two bands that we're gonna talk about today all had 
you know, like they they got their start in the the mid in, in like the late mid eighties, whereas grunge is usually portrayed as like you know ninety two onward. Yeah, and I, I just wonder how much of that's just marketing from VH1 and other music documentaries. A hundred percent, I would say, and it's it's something that they do consistently with like the history of punk rock too. They tell the story of punk. And they'll go back and do their research and talk about the Stooges and the MC5 and all that stuff. And then they'll talk about, you know, the Ramones and the CBGB scene. And they'll talk about London and the Sex Pistols and the Clash. And then they kind of just stop and pick it back up again with Smells Like Teen Spirit and skip the entire 80s underground era of, you know, Black Flag, SST Records, Husker Du, um, Minor Threat, Bad Brains, Misfits. All that stuff uh, just gets erased. And it's basically because it never had the big commercial angle that, you know, the Melvins never sold millions of albums. Tad never sold millions of albums. Sub Pop eventually did sell millions of albums, but their story is only kind of told as here's where Nirvana came from. And it's it's a total distortion of history and it's been driving me crazy. Well, yeah, and like, you you know, some of the bands you mentioned, like uh, Black Flag and... Uh, the misfits they kind of had like their post you know like like their the retrospective period you know sort of like like the video rental period where they got big uh the melvins has certainly had that i, I mean like their whole career has basically been that but tad didn't really get that yeah tad, and go ahead yeah well, and like, like I wonder why. I mean, I mean, I get like why the documentarians skip over like the Misfits and Black Flag, probably because like Rollins owes the money and they just didn't want to talk to Danzig for more than twenty minutes. But um, there's also Ted is sort of, you know, like the underground bands didn't have slick videos, and there's not a lot of film footage of them, so it's it's harder to piece that together. But anyway, go ahead. Well, you know, so so like the Melvins, I mean, obviously, like Buzz Osborne had like that legendary look, and you know, anytime you show that just footage of that guy, the the audience is sort of entranced. Whereas, you know, Tad had a very different aesthetic, and I, I don't know, because <laughs> like Godfalls came out in '89, but it just only like a few years later, Cannibal Corpse was selling, uh, Cannibal like Cannibal Corpse had a platinum selling record, and there and Corpse Grinder was not no one's idea of a matinee idol, even in the 90s. So I, I don't know. I, I just kind of wonder why, you know, Tad didn't get that. Because, I, I mean, I, I didn't really know about them until you brought this project to me. Like, I was I was always, you know, I, I, I like the Melvins. I'm pretty familiar with Green River and Mud Honey, But Tad just sort of was you know whitewashed from history and that's it's a very the reason why it's very odd yeah i mean there's there's two big factors and we'll talk about it um and and when we discuss the movie but i think the two big factors are that tad had terrible luck with their record labels both with sub pop when they were one of the leading bands on sub pop from 88 to 90 they were they were one of the crown jewels in sub pop um and then with their two major labels, with Warner Brothers and Elektra, they 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 epitomized the experience of many small, you know, indie bands that were signed in the wake of Nirvana, like the Butthole Surfers were signed. I mean, everybody was signed. Jesus Lizard was signed. The Melvins were signed. Tad was signed. 
and uh, Mudhoney was signed. And a few of those bands succeeded, but most of those bands didn't. And Tad had one of the worst experiences of all. So MTV blacklisted Tad, or at least they wouldn't play the Wood Goblins video that Sub Pop had put together. And the word was it was because Tad Doyle, their singer, was too heavy. Tad, MTV was fat phobic. And, um, you know, Tad was a big dude. And, and M- MMA fans might remember Roy Nelson, who was this overweight, high-level, con- you know, he, he had a big gut. He was a heavyweight fighter. And fans loved him in part because of the unabashed, hey, I've got a big belly and, and yeah. uh, this is me. But the, M- but the UFC and Dana White were bitterly resistant to that. They didn't want to market that. And MTV was in the same boat. And, and I believe Warner Brothers um, also had that problem. So let's go ahead and hear some Tad. Well, well, the, okay, go ahead. This is the infamous Wood Goblin single, the video for which uh, MTV would not go. And that was Tad's 1989 single, Wood Goblins, video, like I was saying, MTV would not. That's one factor as to why Tad got erased. And then... The well, other... But, like, wasn't John Candy popular, sort of contemporaneous to that period? I mean, yeah, I... he was. And John Belushi he was, he was massively good. popular, you know, just 10 years before. Um, but... You know, you'd have to track down the decision makers at MTV at that time, and they've all denied it when they've been tracked down. But that yeah. was the word overwhelmingly, um, you know, and it was probably just one decision maker somewhere in the bowels of MTV who said, oh, I don't like this guy. He's he's fat. And this is a point in time when no sub pop bands, you know, no indie bands were getting mega love on MTV. I mean, some were. There was a 120 minutes program. And Tad was a band that could have fit on 120 minutes and Headbangers Ball. Um, and, you know, they just kind of got lost in the shuffle. And that was one of the things, like, trying to explain to you, and you're what, 15 years younger than 35. You? You're 35. 35, so about 25 years younger than you. Yeah, 20. <laughs> 18. <laughs> 18 years younger yeah. than me. And when you didn't even know Tad existed, and then... You know, I really felt like we needed to tell this story because you're a pretty serious head. And the other factor is, like, was grunge metal? That was kind of the key point of the metal evolution or key question of the metal evolution episode that Eugene and Alexia and I discussed. And, you know, I think the consensus is, no, grunge wasn't metal, but it was metal adjacent or metal influenced. It was bands coming out of the punk scene and... They um, bands in Seattle in particular were pretty open about incorporating metal and hard rock influences like Aerosmith and Black Sabbath. But that made me realize there was a whole thing called noise rock. It was also called the pig fucker movement, which is a terrible name. Uh, Robert Criscow people coined that. 
but it, it included bands like the Butthole Surfers, Big Black, Pussy Galore, um, Naked Raygun, The Swans, et cetera, et cetera. And bands like Tad were very much in this tradition. And grunge wasn't codified as grunge yet. Like they were, Sub Pop was hyping themselves as grunge for some of their bands like Mud Honey and Green River and, and Soundgarden. But it didn't really become a thing like codified and locked in steel until Nirvana was big on MTV. And then they had to explain what is this. And then they wanted to market other bands as grunge or as this new thing. But in 88, 89, bands like Tad would be on a split single with a band like Pussy Galore. And Sub Pop would put that out together. Mud Honey was on a single with Sonic Youth. You know, Nirvana toured with Sonic Youth. Nirvana and Tad toured together as co-headliners. And I think that'll tell you a lot about their relative status. Yeah. So next question. Next question. So, like, like getting back to Tad Doyle's appearance, I mean, it is pretty striking that, you know, some of the, you know, any better large female following i've met many of uh women that had a had a thing for eddie vetter chris cornell i mean obviously one of one, one of the sex symbols of the 90s and kurt cobain had that following too and i guess like when you're <laughs> tad doyle it's it's a little bit harder to to fit in with that and you know i i, I don't want to get into the documentary too soon but go ahead there was a there one one of the talking heads there, he said, he's like, look, success in this industry is about a, a dozen things before you get to music and, you know, just sort of the unluckiest man in the world syndrome for, for dad. And, you know, I guess like when we discuss some of these other bands, you know, guys like Scott Weiland, Kurt Cobain and Chris Cornell are no longer alive, whereas Tad Doyle is. So, you know, maybe... Uh, Maybe had a little, uh, maybe had a little bit more luck than he gives himself credit for. Yeah, I mean that's the thing about it is that the the fate of those people that succeeded seemingly so massively, first Kurt Cobain and then you know Lane Staley of Alice in Chains who completely went underground and then OD'd in the early two thousands, Scott Wheeland uh, tragically also and then Chris Cornell finally dies tragically and so. Yeah, that kind of puts it in perspective, but there's no way around it that Tad Doyle and also Kurt Danielson, uh, the bass player and Tad, both had serious drug problems and serious health problems. So they paid a massive price in the late 90s. But And then the Melvins kind of contrast because both Tad and the Melvins in a superficial way are bands that are like, they never got big and famous, but they were massively influential on bands who did. And the Melvins in particular were massively influential because they were the they're the band most commonly credited with bringing real heavy sound to seattle like if you listen to the deep six compilation which came out in 1986 and had tracks by the melvins also had tracks by soundgarden had tracks by green river and green river is the band that essentially spun off into mud honey mother love bone and pearl jam also had Skinyard on that compilation. Skinyard most famous because Jack and Dino, who produced Bleach and the Tad album, first Tad album and the first um, Nirvana's Bleach and the first Mudhoney recordings, was kind of the in-house producer for Sub Pop. He was in Skinyard. 
Then there was a band called Malfunction, whose singer became was Andrew Wood, who became the leader of Mother Love Bone, and then the U Men, who were kind of the leader of the underground scene in Seattle at the time. They were the first band to record albums, the first band to tour nationally, and their sound is kind of proto grunge. But the Melvins were the ones who detuned, who were unabashedly Black Sabbath influenced and black heavy Black Flag influenced. I war era of Black Flag. Black Flag came back from their lawsuit problem in an 18-month hiatus and came back with long hair playing slow. Just to piss, it seemed like just to piss off their fans who wanted them to be the shaved head fast um, you know, kings of hardcore. And so the you know the Melvins and the Melvins were the big brother band for Nirvana. I mean Kurt Cobain literally worked as a roadie for the Melvins and and uh, Chris Novoselich and Kurt Cobain are all involved in the story. So both Tad and the Melvin kind of get written off as, oh, they were influential, but they never made it big. But they had very almost opposite stories and almost, almost opposite outcomes because the Melvins navigated that brilliantly and in some ways came out ahead of Nirvana. Like they're fat and happy now, you know, and they're living and they're healthy and they've had these long career and they've made a living at it and they've done whatever they wanted to do artistically they survived a three album deal with atlantic and made money on the deal whereas tad you know had these multiple major label deals that went uh deadly deadly wrong for them so um you know and that was interesting maybe it's just that they avoided getting sued well that was a big thing and let's go ahead and talk about the horrible bad luck that hits tad and this, to me, is a classic example of what can happen when you've got a really ambitious indie label like Sub Pop that has no money, no lawyers, and um, is hell-bent on making a big noise. And, you know, the reason we're talking about Sub Pop and the reason we're talking about grunge is because they were very good at what they did. They were real students of music history. They studied Motown and... SST and, and Atlantic, they knew that the history of these different record labels and they knew that like, you know, they, they had a unique graphic look. They had they had the same photographer who had a Charles Peterson who had this great, you know, black and white photo style. Their, so their records had this look and brilliantly promoted and they knew you needed a sound, a signature sound for your label. And they are the ones who coined the term grunge and really focused on this grunge aspect. But um, when they went to, quote unquote, break Tad, as in to make Tad a major band, and major hit album, for an indie label at this time, you're talking like anything from 50,000 to, to 100,000. 100,000 was like the ceiling, absolute ceiling for what an indie punk label could do in the late 80s. Um, and they were shooting to break through that. And Tad was the flagship, and and this was Tad's third album, or it had an album, then an EP, and then and then this album, Eight Way Santa, and you know they had a whole plan to attack college radio. They had the video made. They 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 had the whole thing ready ready to go. And and this is the song that was going to be the big single for Tad, called Jack Pepsi. So let's hear Tad sing Jack Pepsi.
And that was Tad doing a song called Jack Pepsi. And you're a lawyer. What's the first thing that makes you scratch your head about a song called Jack Pepsi? Uh, well, see, today there's a new artist called NBA Youngboy, and he somehow manages not to get sued. So, uh, but maybe he's more with, in line with the NBA's aesthetics than um, Tad was with Pepsi's. Yeah, something happened because <laughs> Tad got sued by Pepsi. Sub Pop got well, and the logo maybe too. threatened to sue. Like, I'm not sure they even sued, but 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 the the single had to be pulled because they had infringed on the logo as well, and yeah, you know, it had to be renamed Jack. And this was not the first lawsuit that hit them when this album came out. They also had a cover which was a super cool photo of two like biker 70s rocker looking dude and a chick she's got her she's using a hanky as a bra like you know like a, a crips or blood style headband as a bra and the dude has like a nazareth um sidewalk sideburns mustache combo with chester a arthur Perfect cover photo, and they treated it up with like both are blazed out of their mind too. Oh, that physical, was also yeah. very important. Yeah. yeah, and and the dude's grabbing the the chick's breast, and um, they didn't clear the rights to that. That was a photo that, that the band had found in a in a photo album that somebody bought just to use as a photo album. It turned out it had some photos from the previous owner in it, and they thought it was funny, and they took it up to Sub Pop, and Sub Pop was like, "We're going to use this for the cover," and it didn't occur. To Public anybody. domain. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the thing, the problem was that those people still lived in Seattle. I bought the picture, you know, and, like I, I bought the picture. It came in the, this album that I bought. <laughs> yeah, and and it doesn't work that way. They were sued uh, by the couple, and and essentially, you know, uh, Tad went from being a red hot underground indie band that was. One of two, like two flagship bands, Mud Honey and Tad, were the big bands at Sub Pop in this period. They're they're one of the two. I mean, Nirvana was on the label at the same time, but Nirvana was not quite at that status yet. Even though they had co-headlined with Tad, if you look back at the coverage of of that tour in the British media and European media, Tad was the lead. Nirvana was the follow-up, and Nirvana was kind of seen as a baby Melvin's. So like a lot of people who heard the first Nirvana album who had heard the Melvins wrote them off as, oh, Melvins Jr. That's what Lou Barlow of Dinosaur Jr. and Sebado said at first. So, you know, Tad's the big flagship. This is going to be the record that they're going to push and try to sell 100,000 copies of. And it went down in flames. You know, they had to pull the, the record off the market within two weeks of its release, I think and then put a new cover on it yeah. and get it back out there. And then the Jack Pepsi lawsuit happens, apparently because of a disgruntled sub pop We contacted Pepsi and let him. So, yeah, just a, a once to whammy. And even though Tad recovered from that and signed mm -hmm. uh, a deal with Giant, the Warner Brothers label, and continued to tour and record um, and made the Inhaler mm -hmm. album, which is, you know, one of their best works. I'm a real big believer that bands almost never recover, or any musical act almost never recovers from that first break in the moment. That first time things go wrong like that, and their drummer quit mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, and you know, had to become a new band. 
So, you know, they just stumbled right out of the gate and never, and never really recovered. That well, and you're also forgetting the first stroke of bad luck for Tad when the guy at the guitar store uh, sold Tad Doyle a Fender Jaguar instead of one of those Jackson Randy Rose <laughs> flying V's. <laughs> now that that I think is more a matter of of you not appreciating noise rock as noise rock. <laughs> the Fender Mustang was hot, and the Fender Jaguar because uh, uh, Jay Mascus of Dinosaur Jr. That was his preferred axe, and he was considered the best guitarist in the scene. And it's also important to remember, Dinosaur um, at this point was on SST and had major college radio hit, like with a cover of The Cure's Just Like Heaven, and also their song Freak Scene. And they were, many people thought they were the band that would be, would accomplish what Kurt Cobain ended up accomplishing. And so, you know, they were very much even though they weren't called a grunge band or they, they were seen as a noise band, they were very much at the head of the same scene. Like grunge was a subset of, of um, alternative rock at this point in time on indie side. And although there was a major label side of grunge as well, because Soundgarden left Sub Pop to go to A&M and stopping off to make a record for SST first, which was probably after they signed their A&M deal. You know, they were trying to get underground cred by being. You also had Mother Love Bone, which was, like I said, made up of members of Green River and Malfunction. That was on Polydor. And uh, Alice in Chains, which was a local metal band that had gotten hip to the scene in Seattle and kind of tweaked their sound. They had the same management as Soundgarden and, and also had business connections with Mother Love Bone. So there was this major label group of bands out of Seattle that were around at the same time. Like I can remember seeing Soundgarden and Danzig, San Antonio around the same time that I saw Mudhoney in Austin. And there was just really a feeling that because they were on major labels, they weren't as cool. They were playing in the metal clubs instead of the punk clubs and the crowds weren't as big. When Mudhoney played Austin, I want to say 88, summer of 88, um, might've been summer of 89, they packed the club on the street to the rafters and the feeling there was just this feeling this is the band this is flagship destiny band of the moment couldn't about how many people could fit in that club i would it was a it was i would it would probably be considered a small club so a couple hundred people capacity um but absolutely packed to the rafters whereas like Soundgarden and Danzig were playing in, in a bigger club and drawing less people they were probably playing in a capacity of like three to five hundred but there's less than a hundred people there or you know maybe 150 or two, maybe even 200 it might have even been the same number of people because it was a pretty rowdy show. but just a bigger bigger billing and you know yeah. seems small right yeah and and you know when mother i remember when mother love bombs record came out it, it was displayed at sound exchange which was the big alternative you know record store by the university's campus but it wasn't moving units the way the mud hunting records were. you know mud hunting was just the hot so, shit at the time it was tad so like how much it, it, i guess in today's money how much money is like a hundred thousand copy single to the label like how much how much money is that in today's well, i mean it would be you know an album was probably 7.99 i want to say 7.99 to 9.99 um and you know 
multiply that by 100,000, of course, they only keep a small percentage of that because uh, the retailer gets a big chunk and the distributor gets a chunk, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so well, 100,000 to bucks and like 89 money is probably still like two. I mean, 100K yeah. then is still like 250 today. So yeah. And, and um, Stop Pop at this point in time was making its money off the single of the month that would get you to subscribe to for the year. It was genius. And and then they would have. So they were the OG Spotify. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and that cash flow, guaranteed cash flow from people who'd subscribe to the, the thing kept them floating. Um, but let's go ahead and take a break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll segue and talk more about them. Like Sub Pop was infamously undercapitalized. And it reminds me of Sam Phillips at Sun Records when he had Elvis. The reason he sold Elvis for $35,000 is he didn't have enough money to promote Elvis or even really pay Elvis what he owed him. But once he had that $35,000, then he had the cash to get Carl Perkins to number two nationally with Blue Fade Shoes, to get Jerry Lee Lewis to number one twice with um, Great Balls of Fire and a whole lot of Shaken and, 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 you know, Break Roy Orbison and Charlie Rich, et cetera, et cetera. Sub Pop hadn't made their big money yet. They had the cash flow thing with the single of the month club, but they were still pretty pity Andy and, and hand to mouth. And it wasn't until... I think it was Chris Novoselic who insisted that they sign a contract with Nirvana. And what that did is when and they signed with Nirvana signed with Geffen, Sub Pop licensed Bleach or sold Bleach to Geffen, but then got royalties from Geffen. So when smells like Teen Spirit and Nevermind blow up, Bleach becomes a big catalog, goes platinum, and Sub Pop's getting fat money off. Plus, Bud Honey put out an album in 1991 that sold 50,000 copies out of the gate. Every good boy deserves fudge. Um, even though Mudhoney at this point had already cut their hair, they had like the definitive hipster haircut of 1989, which was kind of this bowl haircut grown out to the chin length. And by the time I saw them, they had just cut their hair. And then Steve Turner, the guitar player, had been a founder of the River as well. He quit to go back to school. And so they took six months off at this point in time when they were one of the biggest bands in the underground. I mean, they were as big as Fugazi or the Butthole Surfers or um, Jane's Addiction. was probably bigger at that point because they were on a major label, but those other, the indie bands were very, very hot. Time. And Mudhoney kind of opted out, but then they, they came back in early 91 and, and put out every fudge, which then helped bail out. Sub. So, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not talking about vast fortunes here, but they were just drastically undercapitalized for what machines had. Now um, we should talk about the Melvins because the striking thing to me about the Destiny is they avoid that whole coulda, woulda, shoulda narrative that really dogs the Tad story. Crusted circuits and ring. It's kind of a bummer. I mean, it, it's kind of a downer, don't you think? Or uh, yeah, it's a, it's total downer. Um, yeah. Like, it's also told a very different way. I, I mean, like, there's some narration on it, but, I, I mean, like, the Colossus of Destiny, it's just, like, talking head after talking head after talking head. And, like, you almost have to know about the Melvins beforehand to really piece it together. Whereas Busted Circuits and Ringing Ears is more, 
you know, someone that was kind of new to the new to Tad, I, I I felt like I learned the story of the band through there. Whereas, you know, like if I didn't know anything about the Melvins, I don't I don't know if I'd pick much up off the Colossus of Destiny. <laughs> uh yeah, that's uh, since I know so much about the Melvins, it's hard for me to evaluate that. But you might be right about that. It, it's pretty elliptical, and it was only the second or third time that I really got narrative that they were putting together but the one thing that comes across though i think to anybody who watches is that this is a successful project that these guys are happy that they oh very doing and and that they have accomplished a lot and done a lot of cool things in their career so it's i think very illustrative to, to compare and contrast tad and alvin's and, and i think the two biggest things were tad wanted to get rich and famous and did everything they could to be as big as they possibly and uh and then dabbled in drugs or went on beyond dabbling in drugs and were serious drinkers and and partiers while the melvins have had members who as osborne and del prover the guitarist and drummer mainstays in the band are i wouldn't say straight edge but very much under control and healthy patient they've had so they avoided those big pitfalls and another thing and one of the other things that i think is key and is easy to miss is because the melvins were living in aberdeen which is a small town on the ocean oregon border where kurt Cobain also lived but they could travel to seattle and olympia and portland and play they had this big big impact on the seattle scene which was really rinky dink at this point in time like the the, the by 91 Cobain, Nirvana's playing shows in Seattle where they're drawing like 2,000, 3,000 people. But that came late. When when you're talking about the 80s, you're talking about a couple dozen people. You know, a band with their friends watching and then the other band and their friends. You know, bands would go around. Very small scene. Yeah. And the Melvins were a big deal in that scene. They were on the Deep Six compilation. And the Deep Six compilation is one of these things that was looked back on as a big deal, but it got no distribution and it didn't sound very good. Um, so, like, I didn't hear about it until like '88 or '89, by the which time the big, you know, grunge was the hip thing, sub pop was the cool label. So, people had dug up this Deep Six compilation and were learning about Malfunction and the Human and Skinyard and stuff, and already knew about Soundgarden, River. And this was one of the big places where people were hearing about the Melvins. But see, the Melvins were never on Sub Pop. And they left Seattle in 1987 and 1988, which is the exact wrong time to leave Seattle. And they moved to San Francisco, fired their bass player, Matt Lucan, who goes on to form Mud Honey, and a key part of their success. And then bring in Shirley Temple's daughter, <laughs> Lori Black. And this one was like, these like celebrity punkers. Was, I thought that was a joke when they said that. I didn't know that was actually Shirley Temple's daughter. It's truly Shirley Temple's daughter, Lori Black. Oh, Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and, you know, this was a period of time when like the, there was, um, and I'm blanking on his name, but the kid from, uh, there was a 70s sitcom, something Eddie, Eddie and his father or whatever. And the, the child star from that. Leave it to Beaver. No, it wasn't Leave it to Beaver. <laughs> well, he but, said Eddie and his father. So I was thinking yeah, Eddie. That was, it was something Eddie and his father. But there was a kid who had been in the sitcom that all the Gen Xers knew about. 
and he he had a punk band. There was another punker who was a son of a senator, and he he led the band Marginal Man. Um, you know, so there was this sort of like thing in the underground where occasionally there would be these nexus, these connections with celebrity culture, and Melvin's Shirley Temple connection was definitely in that category. Definitely enhanced their buzz, but they weren't song oriented. Like Tad, for as much as they were noisy and loud, and like you said, could have been marketed to metal audiences because I think they had that kind of sustained masculine intensity that none of the other grunge bands really had. Maybe Soundgarden, maybe Alice in Chains, but I think you're right that they were the one grunge band that should have, could have, would have, should have been marketed to metal dudes. Um, but they had songs and pop songs, whereas the Melvins avoided pop song structure religiously and were like, you know, yeah, they were a cross between Black Sabbath and Black Flag, but with a big heaping helping of Captain Beefheart in there too. Plus, as much as you talk about Buzz Osborne being recognizable, in the 90s, like when they played the Reading Festival in England, they flopped hard. I mean, people hated them. When they toured with, with White Zombie, the White Zombie fans hated them. Nine Inch Nails hated them. Like they, they did not come across as rock stars at all. It, it was only like this sort of self selected cognoscenti who really dug the heavy music who loved them but anytime they tried to expand their audience totally alienated well it's i mean they were also album rock too i mean like you said they don't really have songs i mean like there's a few melvin's riffs that i recognize but you know that is like hey yeah this is this is that song uh but Yeah, there's no hooks. I, I mean, like some of the other bands that you listed in there, I mean, like I'd almost say, you know, King Crimson, where like, like the songs don't exist as like separate parts that you could just pull out. I mean, it, it's more of the album as a whole that should be experienced front to back. Yeah. And w- without like song two, you don't get song seven. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And let's go ahead and hear a little bit of the album. This is Boris. And this is this was a, a a key part in their evolution because the Melvins are basically inventing doom metal, reinventing it. And there, you know, Black Sabbath is obviously the founder of doom metal, but also the founder of black. Well, metal, they're like heavy metal itself. <laughs> yeah, it, it's kind of hard to say they invented doom metal when they just invented well. Um, I, but all metal. Yeah. The key value, musical value of doom metal is start with Black Sabbath you know, and keep the elements of Black Sabbath that say Judas Priest and Van Halen and others stripped out. The heavy bass frequency. And because Buzz wasn't interested in song structure, he was willing to do these super heavy 
compositions that led to doom metal and their album Lysol, which came out in 92 and that they got sued for that and had to change the name to just Melvin's and, and had to do it manually by taking black tape and covering up the, the, the album covers. Um, but it opens with this eight minute long song that bleeds into the next song and sounds like a 12 minute suite. And it's, it's everything you're going to hear from bands like sleep. Um, High on fire in a few years, so yeah, or hell, even tool, yeah, like to some degree, a ton of tool. Like, that's like I'd never really listened to tool, I was aware of tool at the time, but I'd never really listened to him until we did the metal evolution thing. And it really struck me that, yeah, this is art rock, but it's not out of the Frank Zappa prog rock tradition, like say Dream Theater or Queen's or Rush. And then I realized this sounds like the Melvins. And there are other bands like Eugene brought up Neurosis. Um, but I think Neurosis is more post metal. Uh, but anyway, but but was probably an influence on Tool as well. But Tool's coming from a whole different aesthetic tradition that I would argue starts with the Melvins and probably got to Tool via Soundgarden. Because if you listen to like Soundgarden on the Deep Six compilation, they're way more reverby and way less heavy than they would become. They were very much acolytes of the Melvins and also got a lot of the disjointed riff structures and odd time signature thing. They were just able and interested in keeping it in a pop or metal song context, more of a metal song than a pop. Um, and really, it's not until um, Super Unknown that Soundgarden becomes starts doing pop songs and perfectly timed because Cobain has died and now they kind of become that's when they become the big four. They had always been the underperformer. Like in this period, we're talking about 88, 89, Soundgarden's already put out uh, an album on SST, Ultra Mega OK, and an album on A&M, Louder Than Love, and both of them underwhelmed. Like they looked cool. I knew about the sub pop connection. I was dying to like them. And those albums just way underperformed. Then they got well, race you know. and Shepard and Bad Motorfinger in 91 dramatically improved. And then Chris Cornell gets interested in pop songs, so super unknown, and then they become superstar. Go ahead, what you're going to say? Well, you know, like, look at the musical context of the era. I mean, 88, that was it, Metallica just got on MTV with their video for one, I think. Was Appetite yeah. 87 or 88? Appetite was 87, but mainly big in 88. Still, still, you know, I mean, that's when like Paradise City and Sweet Child of Mine, Welcome to the Jungle were all big songs. Like a band like Soundgarden isn't really going to succeed in that in that context, especially with the stuff they were putting out then. And, you know, you go to 91, I mean, that's when the Black Album came out. And, you know... But the Black Album was influenced by... And, and so you know, fit in by Soundgarden itself, actually. And so, so they do not quite, uh, Bob Rock just claims that is not true. <laughs> but Metallica claims it is. Uh, <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> I think what happened was Bob Rock had no idea what grunge was, but Metallica did. And, and well, it's also like that thing where the producer doesn't want to get sued. Yeah. But that's the thing. So like Soundgarden and A&M were going for that market. They were, they were going for the metal market. But they were also had a foot in the punk market. The attention they were getting was from the punk market, who had, were excited about sub pop. And so 
it it wasn't pleasing us either. It wasn't pleasing the metalheads, but it was cool and okay. Like they opened up for Danzig and went over fine with the crowd, but like Danzig wrapped their car, their van in packing tape or in duct tape, completely wrapped it. Like, so they were getting, you know, pantsed by Danzig on this tour. And who was the guy that beat up the Danzig in the 80s? Uh, that uh, was in the 90s. That was, that was, or the oh. 2000s even. The um, video, like the Misfits violence thing had to do with their bassist, Gary uh, Vaughn. Not Danzig. He he nearly broke a kid's neck in San Francisco, and Eugene was at that show, and that that was the show that broke up Misfits because I believe lawsuits. I'm not sure about that. Well, you, yeah, you can't yeah. you can't break kids back and not get sued. Yeah, yeah, and uh, and um, but <laughs> you know that 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 was Danzig vibe. But so Danzig uh, was had segued from the punk world into the alt metal world, but because he was on Deaf American um, and put out just kind of a perfect record with Rick Rubin, you know, they were breaking, they were getting across to the metal art. And Soundgarden people didn't quite know what to make. Um, But they were definitely influenced by the Melvins. And I I believe Tad was influenced by Soundgarden, probably hip enough to to get directly to the Melvins. yeah, but but I I think the Melvins do weigh heavy as this incredibly influential band. I mean, just because Nirvana, you know, imitated them first. That's the primary influence on Nirvana. Then they add the Pixies and the Beatles and Black Sabbath, you know, and and Cobain's songwriting gift, which Buzz Osborne didn't have. And another thing about this, I think. That one of the reasons Tad and Mudhoney never broke big was Tad and Mark Arm were relatively limited vocalists. They were good, great, good to great punk vocalists, but they were never going to do that kind of metal yarl thing that like Eddie Vedder and Chris Cornell and uh, Lane Staley could all do. And that became a kind of a hallmark of grunge and a key ingredient of, of the second wave of grunge bands like Stone Temple Pilots and Ken. So, but what if, what if Tad Doyle tried to do the um, Phil Anselmo vocals? Say that again? What if you tried to do the Phil Anselmo vocals? Because oh, um, yeah, he could easily have done gone gone that way, um, you know. Um, and I and I think I think Tad could have could have would have should have. I, I think Eight White Santa, if it had uh, just gotten a fair shot at the college market, would have blown up quite a bit bigger. But let's hear our final song. And this is the Melvins from the Lysol album. This is the segue from Hung Bunny into Roman Birdville. That was the sound of the Melvins perfecting doom metal in 1992 off the Lysol album. Hung Bunny. Yeah, I mean, just to me, that's an example. Like, the Melvins are a defining hallmark compass point for grunge and for doom metal 
later on. And I think that's one of the reasons they were able to survive the backlash to grunge way that Tad wasn't. Like Tad survived the the debacle with Sub Pop, signs to Giant Records, is touring with Soundgarden, puts out a kick-ass album in Inhaler, touring with Soundgarden, going over great. I I, I can absolutely testify firsthand that, that Tad totally held their own Soundgarden in the post-grunge big-time era, and then suddenly are dropped over Bill Clinton poster, a, a joke about inhaling. And that's heavy <laughs> shit, man. I do. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, you know. Yeah. Go ahead. Well, I mean, because, but that's sort of what was kind of the ethos of the time was, you know, kind of like sticking it to the man. And yeah. <laughs> and, and, and also um, sample culture remix culture was was massive and so doing things like appropriating a corporate logo or taking a picture of the president and adding you know a joint and heavy shit um that you know that was the ethos of the time but it bit tad in the ass and they get dropped again and then by the time they do their third album um or their second major label fourth album um on electra I think it was East West was a subsidiary, but by that point, grunge was very uncool. Basically, as soon as Kurt Cobain picked up that shotgun, grunge was tainted. And and for some reason, the Candlebox type bands, you know, the record companies were like, "Oh, we're going to clone Kurt Cobain and Nirvana as closely as we can, and we're going to give you eight of these." Those guys got ground, but all the bands like Tad that were associated with grunge, but hadn't made it big. That was it. Party's over. You're dumped. And just seemed very ice cold. Whereas the Melvins were always eccentric and never even tried for that big. And putting out albums on indie labels while they were on their Atlantic deal. And they completed the Atlantic deal on their own terms. And like, as soon as they were dropped by Atlanta Atlantic, Rather than sitting in limbo for months or years, they pushed it and forced the issue and made Atlantic drop them. And they already had an album recorded and ready to go on an end table and, and hit the ground running with the tour that they financed themselves because they made a profit on all three of their Atlantic records by taking their advance and spending as little as possible on the recording and packaging and production and video and shit, just keeping the cash. Albums. Mudhoney well, was a simple thing. Well, go ahead. Well, I mean, like you also talk about Tad's bad luck. I mean, you got to talk about the Melvins' good luck too. I mean, they had, yeah. you know, the documentary. There was just that guy that was starting a record label, and he's like, "Well, hey, I've got three albums ready to go. Do you want to? Do you want to release them there?" And sure. Yeah, Whereas was, um, Mike Patton's partner uh, at Epipec uh, Records, who had, you know, was putting together yeah, a label right. just for Mike Patton to do. Uh, you know, he already had Faith No More and Mr. Bungle, and he wanted he had another project called Phantomas that he wanted to put out on his own label. And so, but like those guys, and I, I I don't view that as luck because the Melvins had already established their reputation and the relationship with Mike Patton. So, uh, oh sure, but I mean, like that was another key theme of the story is that the Melvins have friends everywhere, and their friends were able to help them. Yeah, it's, um, it's true. 
Yeah, and that's the punk and, ethos because they were true to the punk ethos and they were good at doing business and, and, and building relationships at that grassroots level. You know, when they were dropped, they um, had plenty of hands ready to catch them, whereas Tad had gotten way into the drugs and the craziness and just got sucked to the darkness, you know, and, and I don't know if Tad never considered going back to sub pop or indie labels or if that was door was even open for them anymore, but, you know, they got dropped another time and stumbled on until 1999, like three, four years after they were dropped for the last out doing anything without doing any indie labels or, or doing random club gigs in their hometown where Elvin's uh, just got right back on the road and now they've for the past 20 years have had a very astute response to mp3s like their stuff's online it's digital you can get it for free but if you want the cool stuff they're making these collectible singles and albums and that it was unique professional art uh, packaging and you know just very shrewd business people and, and they're, they're not making a lot of money but they've got a printing press in their house that's his wife is a is a great graphic artist is the woman who designed a social distortion um album back in the day i think her name's mackie and you know just this perfect diy machine whereas tad never had the capacity or never put that infrastructure together. I don't know if he had the capacity. Or... Well, and, and you talked about they left Seattle at the exact wrong time. I, well, maybe they left it at the right time because they, I mean, like yeah. you said, they weren't straight edge, but I mean, they never got into, I mean, but it just seems like smack was the was drug of choice of that too. scene. Yeah. It, well, it, it doesn't seem like it was the same way. I mean, Maybe not quite as bad, but it was <laughs> pretty bad. And also, yeah, the well, I mean, they had it everywhere. It's not yeah. like yeah. all those Pacific Coast towns, the Carolina towns. But yeah, I don't know. I think the Melvins probably would have avoided that that pitfall. But just they just they were always a little bit behind the veil. I mean, you know, even like historically, we might not think about Mud Honey and Tad and Sub Pop in this era as being a big cultural factor, but they really were. They just kind of got written out of it by, by the corporate historians. But the Melvins weren't getting that level of public. Like, you had to be really into grunge to get, um, you know, uh, to hear about the Melvins. And I had an odd circumstance because Austin was actually behind Lubbock as far as getting hip to grunge. Lubbock had a or That's where Texas Tech is. And I had friends there. And they were telling me about sub pop and grunge way before sound exchange was, they had sub pop records, but they weren't pushing them. Like, and I got Bleach, Nirvana's first album on a trip to Lubbock. I had to go to Lubbock special to get that record. <laughs> like they didn't have it in Austin. They had a, 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 they had had one copy and they put, you know, the little plastic divider thing and wrote Nirvana on it, but it was always empty. So, you know, um, the stuff, you know, the, the indie circuit marketed by word of mouth. What's the drive from Austin to Lubbock? Seven hours. You know, six, my man. Five, five and a half to seven hours. It's brutal. Brutal, brutal, brutal. Mm -hmm. But, yeah. You know. So, what, 
why is that? I mean, is that just because like Texas is more of like a broy, you know? I, I think that was cool guy preppy school. I, I, no, I think it was a coincidence of the particular people that were in Lubbock at that time. Like, keep in mind, Texas Tech gets a lot of the cool and beautiful kids of Texas who can't get into UT or A and M for whatever reason. That's kind of the third choice of state schools. So, Do they have like a murder conviction or something? I mean, that... <laughs> just just have a little bit weaker grades, you know. And um, but I think this was more just a factor of also Lubbock is uh, a good way, a good spot for a tour from the West Coast through the Midwest. So bands, uh, I think some of the sub pop bands had already been through Lubbock that hadn't gone down to Austin. There was just a lot of other stuff to compete with at that point in time in Austin. And grunge, you know, pretty soon the Mud Honey records were getting a big feature at 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 Sound Exchange. I would say Austin was maybe six weeks or two months behind. It wasn't like it was years or anything. It was just that buzz hit Lubbock about sub pop. And so, what were the bands touring Austin at the time? I mean, I'd imagine like SRV and DC Top were oh, no, that's, that's pretty big mainstay. In in the scene that I was in. Fugazi had played, I think, two twice there. So their first ever show. Um, the the hardcore scene descended from the Big Boys, and so Tim Kerr and Chris Gates had had Poison Thirteen after the Big Boys, and then Chris Tim Kerr had a funk band called Bad Mother Goose, and then he had you know kind of a blues grunge band called Jackafire, and um, I mean all the underground bands played there. The Butthole Surfers were the big band um, in Austin in the late 80s and and nationally, but they were headquartered in Austin at that time. Gotcha. Ministry played there. It was a big deal. Red Hot Chili Peppers played there. Fishbone played there. The Bad Brains played there. The Bad Brains had their infamous homophobic disaster in Austin. Um, but so we we were on the circuit. I mean, Austin was was a big part of the punk scene, but it's a long way from Seattle, and there was just a lot of competition because, you know, I mean, garage punk was was bubbling under. I mean, Mud Honey was considered that, you know, and and we think of that as now the White Stripes or the Strokes around 2000. But pop punk was was big. I mean, the Descendants and all, um, and that and that stuff was was bubbling under. You know, and and ska was was bubbling under with Operation Ivy that later you know spins out into that whole East Coast uh, ska scene. So there was a, a lot of stuff competing. Like Fishbone was kind of a ska band. It was like they were one part ska, one part keeping a close eye on the Bad Brains, you know, and 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 kind of being a funk. And and the Red Hot Chili Peppers also. The Fishbone and the Red Hot Chili Peppers were twins. Jane's Addiction was out of that same scene. Yeah, so it was there was a lot of stuff going on to compete with. And like one last thing I want to do before we wrap is like Lollapalooza was nineteen ninety. Here's who was on the Lollapalooza tour. This was really as key as smells like teen spirit as far as breaking alternative rock. Jane's addictions headlining. So that's kind of funk metal, I guess. Definitely influenced by them. then you had Susie and the Banshees who were like new wave mainstays turned goth. Um, then you had Living Color, who were definitely Bad Brains influenced. Then you had Nine Inch Nails, who were very ministry influenced industrial. Then you have Ice T and Body Counts. So you have state of the art West Coast gangsta rap and his metal band. Then you have the Butthole Surfers, who are this indie rock, boys rock band. Then you have the Rollins band, who are 
hardcore come basically grunge. I mean, listen to those Rollins band albums. They were an influence on the Melvins. He swiped Greg Ginn's sideline band for the Rollins band, you know, so it's a direct descendant of Black Flag and that kind of proto grunge sound. Then you had the Violent Femmes who were like a REM style alt, alt indie, indie rock band. Then you had Fishbone, like I said, a mix of ska, punk metal. So, so that's the blend. That Those are some of the ingredients that was just seething at this point in time potential and then uh kurt cobain kind of led over the top so that's so that was a big tour that was the that was that was the big tour not just when did they what did what did lollapalooza become just chicago way later not in the 90s okay so there's there's And, and was did you have South by or City? Did you have South by or City Limits around this time, or was that Austin awesome City later? Limits doesn't come around until 2000 or so. South by, so South by Southwest was happening, but initially it's a clubs only thing and a relatively small. Yeah. Club. And initially it's literally trying to promote um, Austin band. But we got to wrap. That's all the time we have. Alrighty. So this was. Um, Chris Duncan, who's a guest lecturer in music at Iowa State University. I'm Nate Wilcox, and this is Fret Metal World. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast, and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Thursday, Nate welcomes David Leaf for a discussion of his film, The United States versus John Lennon. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast. And you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.